Good morning. Today we are moving into episode 17 of The Plan. If you haven't been with us in this series so far, what we're doing is we're going through the story of the Bible from beginning to end. We started in September, and our goal is to meet up with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And we've been trying to focus on the story, the the single story that's being told throughout the whole Bible, the one story that all the little stories are about. And the reason we've been focusing on that is because as Christians, we are part of that story. This is, the Bible is telling us what story we are living in and who we are meant to be and what God wants for us. And it's also the story that we're inviting others into when we share the gospel. And what we've been saying throughout the series is that the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. So God made the world and he put people in it and he gave them a job to rule on his behalf. And then he came down to live with them. And then human beings messed it up. And so ever since then, God has been working to reestablish that plan, that design for humanity. At this point in the story, God is working through one group of people, the Israelites, and he has put them in a particular place and he has given them a particular set of laws and he's come down to live with them in that specific place so that everybody can look there and see these people and the way they're living with God and understand who God is. The last couple of weeks, we have been talking about this transition that Israel's been going through into becoming a monarchy. They asked for a king, and they asked for a king because they really just didn't want to follow God themselves. They wanted someone to follow God for them, and they could just follow that person. And so God gave them a king like what they were looking, like what they were asking for. They gave him Saul. Turns out that the kind of king they wanted wasn't really the kind of king they needed. They wanted a king who would be assertive and and win battles for them and, and... and be a strong leader. What they got was a king who took shortcuts and and took action, but often in rash, foolish ways that were not particularly obedient to God. And so last week we talked about the fact that God anointed another king, David, to take his place. And as we've been comparing the two, as Saul is still king, but we know that David is the king that God actually wants, we were comparing their, their personalities and their actions And we found that they were very different because David obeyed God. Saul took shortcuts. Saul disobeyed God when it made life easier for him. David obeyed even when it made life harder for him. And that's where we left off the story was when David was refusing to kill Saul when he had the opportunity because he trusted that God would take care of things in his own good time. In between Last week's story and this week's story, God does take care of the situation. Saul goes into battle against the Philistines, and he and most of his sons die in battle. And it's actually a little bit more complicated than this, but basically, uh, eventually Israel comes to ask David to be their king. And that's where we're going to pick up in the story in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And so as we're reading, remember that this is how we keep our, our coordinates, keep our bearings in the story, is focus on who is the story about what is the, where is their home? How can they meet with God? And what did God tell them to do? All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders, came, had come, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. All right, so who is the story about? 
Well, last week we had two anointed people at the same time, Saul and David. But now that Saul has died and Israel has called David to be king, it's just David and the Israelites. Right? The situation is much simpler now. There's no tension about who's supposed to be king. It's David. Their home, now we're calling it the kingdom of Israel. They're in this process where... Uh, you don't just put a guy in charge of a loose group of tribes and keep doing things the way you've always done it. Becoming a monarchy in, involves a lot of changes, and we're actually going to see David make those changes this week. So they're, they're transitioning to being a kingdom. How can they meet with God? Well, at this point in the story, the, we know where the tabernacle is. The tabernacle is in a city called Gibeon, but the ark is in a city called Kiriath-Jerim. It's still in the place where we left it, in the care of Canaanites. And so the ark is not in the tabernacle. The ark is basically uh, is still in exile. And so what that means is that Israel, the Israelites are still worshiping at the tabernacle, but there's some sense in which there's a disconnect between them and God because God isn't home. God is not in the tent where they're supposed to meet with him, and so they can continue worshiping with him, and he continues to be active, but there's still some sense of distance between God and Israel that needs to be resolved. Finally, what did God tell them to do? Well, the point that has been made very clearly so far in the story of Saul and David is that the the king is supposed to obey God. That is the main difference between Saul and David, and that's what we learned last week. Obey God, right? Now, we can also, if, if you've memorized the Bible, if you've memorized Deuteronomy, apparently it, the Bible's much easier to understand if you just memorize Deuteronomy, so I should just sit down and do that. But uh, there is a passage in Deuteronomy that gives a few rules for the king. We've already looked at part of it where it gave rules for choosing a king. This week we're going to look at another section, and then next week we'll look at the last section. So here's what it, another thing that it says in Deuteronomy. When the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So, the king is supposed to obey God, but a key part of that, obeying God in this covenant relationship that they have with him, is that the king is supposed to know, enforce, and keep the law. He's supposed to make his own copy of the law, which means every king, when they become king, is supposed to have a fresh copy of the law made so that he will know it. He's supposed to enforce it to make sure that the people of Israel follow the law, But perhaps most importantly, he is supposed to keep the law himself because the king stands in this special relationship to God. This is true in every culture. The king was was often called the son of the gods because the king had to have been chosen by the gods. And so the king, if you wanted to understand what the gods were like, you looked at the king. And so the king takes on special responsibility in showing the world what God is like. So it's really important that the king keep the law alongside all the Israelites to show that they all answer to the same God. So that's the mission that David has. And as we go into his career as king, we're going to see some great successes in that area and significant failure. So the story of his reign is a little bit out of order, so you'll see we're jumping back and forth a bit. But here's the first thing that happens after David becomes king. 
When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force in search of him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So the Philistines come to attack, and David responds by asking God what he should do. And if you've been reading all the stories, we skipped over a lot of these stories about Saul. Saul has not been doing that when he goes into battle. He has not been consulting with God. He tends to follow, chase rumors. He, uh, the last battle he went into, he went and asked a witch to, res- to bring up Samuel's ghost to try and find out what was going to happen. Like Saul was not doing a good job of following God. But David, when he goes into battle, he asks God what he should do. Okay? So God uh, gives him a victory. And then the next, and he, he, he destroys Philistine power for years and at that point. Then he goes on campaigns. And the most important battle in that campaign is uh, in a city called Jerusalem. The king and his men, that means the group of, of soldiers that had been following him uh, throughout when he was being chased around by da- uh, Saul, he had his own private army that he assembled, kind of like, uh, it was a lot like Robin Hood and his merry men, these kind of misfits that collected around him. They were his army. So he took his own army and he went and attacked Jerusalem, which was a city of the Jebusites. Jerusalem was a Canaanite city. It's one of the cities they were supposed to, dist- they were supposed to conquer back in Judges. David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So he captures the city, but actually this battle stands for a much larger campaign because what happens is David actually fights the, takes on the campaign that God told the Israelites to take on during Joshua's time. The one that they gave up during Judges, David takes it back up so that when he hands over the kingdom to his son, who never had to fight wars. He never had to conquer any territory. Solomon didn't. It says that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River, from Tipsha to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. What that means is that all the Canaanites were conquered. He actually, David actually finally fulfilled the mission that God had given the Israelites to do. And as a result of that, he conquers Jerusalem, which is a fortress right smack dab in the middle of Israel, and right on the border of, the, of two different tribes, none of the tribes actually own it, and he conquered it using his own army, which means that this city belongs to him, personally. That's why they call it the City of David. It's kind of like Washington, D.C., not being part of any of, the, um, any of the states. And so David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the City of David. He built up the area around it and from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. He was powerful because God was with him. So David obeyed God's will, and God gave him success. So that what we're seeing is that this is the way the kingship was supposed to work. The king would do the things God told him to do. He would fulfill the missions God gave him, and it would work. And he would, he would find success because he was doing God's will. So David ends up with this perfect capital. It's a fortress. It's easy to defend. It's independent of all the tribes, so nobody else is going to try and take control of it from him. He's got his own army. It's a perfect, solid foundation to build a kingdom from. But in, in David's opinion, it's missing one important thing. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala, which is another name for Kiriath-Jerim, in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. 
See, for David, the thing that was missing in this capital city was the presence of God. It was important to him that God be present in the center of his kingdom, which highlights something interesting, that the only thing keeping God, the ark from being reunited with the Israelites was their desire to bring him to, like, to, to incorporate him into their kingdom. All David had to do was go and get it. Now, they did, there is a little misadventure that happens there that we're not really going to get into where they, they don't do it the right way, they, uh, the way the law tells them to transport the ark, and bad things happen, so they have to wait, and then they try again, and they have a parade, and this parade is very important. It tells you a lot about what's really going on. It says, wearing a linen ephod, which is a very small, thin outfit, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. The reason why this is important, as you picture it, is because the most important person in the parade is the one who is supposed to be the most dignified, right? The, the person the parade is for, they do this thing, right? The elbow, elbow, wrist, wrist, like they're solemn, they're dignified. That's the person who's important. The people who are dancing around in linen ephods, those are the people making a big deal about the person who's at the center of the parade, right? The person who's at the center of the parade is not out with the dancers wearing the dancing outfit, making kind of a fool of themselves, right? So when David dances this way in front of the ark, he's showing that the ark is the big deal, that God is the big deal. When God's in the room, David's just another servant. That's the signal he's sending to his people. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Now that tent is not the tabernacle. The tabernacle is still at Gibeon. But um, the ark is now in Israelite hands. And David did this because out of, as a way to honor God. He makes that very clear in the way he participates in the parade. So David honored God by bringing the ark to the new capital. Now, David has bigger plans than this in mind. He actually wants to build a house, build a temple for God, which they would call the God's house. So he calls a prophet named Nathan, and he says, Nathan, I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, actually, God doesn't want you to build him a house. God is going to build you a house. So the Lord declares to you that the, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This statement is a really big deal, and it's a turning point in the story of the Bible because it makes a significant change to the covenant, to the design of God's plan. We had the, Abraham, the covenant of Abraham where God said, I'm going to work through your people to bless the world. We had the covenant of Moses where God said, all right, here's the laws that I want you to follow so I can live with you. The covenant of David is that God is, is making the monarchy and specifically David's family a permanent part of his plan. That for the rest of, of time, I am going to be working through my people who will rule on my behalf, but there's a person who's going to rule over them on my behalf, and that person is going to come from the family of David. So the monarchy is now an integral part of God's design for the world. So God honored David's obedience 
by making his family part of the covenant forever. So you remember that, that the Samuel told Saul, if you had obeyed me, I would have done this for you, but you didn't. David did obey him, and so his family becomes a permanent part of the covenant. Now this is a huge deal, and it makes David's name one of the most famous in all of history. And when we realize that David is part of the central, uh, is, is an eternal part of the covenant, uh, that means this guy is really important, right? He is, he is the guy that we should emulate. That means he must be like practically perfect, right? It's what we tend to think of our, of our leaders as we, when we see them doing really important things. David must be absolutely amazing and perfect and his reign is going to be the golden age. It's going to be incredible. Everything's going to be smooth sailing from here because God chose him to be part of the covenant. And actually, in, uh, in Islam... David is considered a prophet, and to them, prophets, for, for many of them, prophets are, are perfect. They don't sin. And so for them, it would be highly offensive to say that David did something wrong, which means that the rest of the story of David is highly offensive to them because David is not perfect. David is very imperfect. And, but it's in his imperfection that we see the second really important way in which David is different from Saul. And we see the second important trait that God wants from the people who rule on his behalf. So, let's get into uh, the, the next stage of the story for David. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Let's pause there. So, interesting thing about this story, they don't normally refer to a woman by two family members. They don't normally identify a person by two family members. Here, they tell us who her father is and who her brother, or her brother, who her husband is, right? Why to two names? Well, it's because if you have the Old Testament memorized, which is apparently a very helpful thing, you would recognize those names. Eliam and Uriah are part of David's personal army. They have been fighting with him for years. They were hiding in caves with him. They were on the run from Saul with him. They went on all kinds of adventures together. They, they you know, saved their families from bandits together. They, they did all kinds of things. They, pro- they may have saved each other's lives multiple times. And David had known them for years. In fact, David probably knew Bathsheba for years. In fact, it's entirely possible that David was at the wedding of Uriah and Bathsheba. David knew very well all the people involved, and Uriah and Eliam were both very loyal supporters of David's, which makes it all the more uh, shocking um, what he does. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. This style of writing where the, in the Old Testament where they do a chain of verbs together without much in between is what shows, it's what happens when a person gives in to their appetites and just single-mindedly, just they make the decision and I'm just going to do what I want. It's the same way that it describes Eve taking the fruit. It's actually a very common theme that happens when a person, it's what Abra, how Abraham and Sarah take Hagar this common pattern. So what it tells us is that David made up his mind to give in to that desire and he just, he just did it. He just didn't think twice and it just happened. And it doesn't really tell us much about what Bathsheba was thinking or wanting because, frankly, at that time it didn't matter. He was the king. He got what he wanted. And so he sent someone to get her 
And he took her, and then she went home. And David probably thought that he got away with it, except that the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So now David is in trouble because his sin is going to be exposed, and so he decides to cover it up. So he invites Uriah home, tells him to go home and, and spend the night with his wife, and Uriah refuses because he feels like that would be unfair to all of his companions who are still fighting in the war. He has a lot of integrity here. And so when David can't find a way to cover up his sin, he sends Uriah back with a message with a message for Joab, the commanding general, that says, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And it works. Uriah dies in battle, and David marries Bathsheba, and their son is born. So David abused his power that God had given him by taking Bathsheba and murdering her husband which I would argue is worse than anything Saul did. Frankly, it's, it's in very important ways, it's worse than anything we have uh, from Saul in terms of breaking God's law, v- abusing people, betraying people. Uh, it's, it's a horrible thing that he's done. Now, what makes it even more problematic is the fact that this is the king. The king has been invested with all of this power and authority. What do you do when the guy with all the power is, is wrong and is sinning and is abusing that power? Well, what you need is a really brave prophet. Nathan is apparently a really brave prophet because God sends Nathan to confront David. And he said to David, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I give you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you, do, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Prophet just accused the king of murder to his face, but he's not done. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So a prophet just accused the king of murder to his face and threatened him with a curse on his family. What would happen to that prophet in any of the non-Israelite kingdoms? Just prophet shows up that says something the king doesn't like, you kill him. That's standard operating procedure. Now, in Israel, it's a little bit different because there is a sense that the king answers to God, and so a prophet who speaks for God has a bit more authority and can't be just disregarded. That's why Saul didn't kill Samuel. Uh, Samuel definitely uh, avoided him when they, went into, when they started fighting. But, but instead, what we saw Saul do was Saul would go on these long diatribes when he was confronted, trying to avoid responsibility. He would uh, deny that he, broke, that he broke the command. He would blame others, and he would try and bribe his way out of it. Like just long explanations where he'd use a lot of words to try and get out of what he had done. So now that we have a situation where David has been confronted with a pretty egregious sin, it's important for us to notice how he responds. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's a very short, simple statement, and it's really powerful by how short and simple it is. Because it doesn't make any excuses, it doesn't make any evasions, 
It doesn't do any of the stuff that Saul tries to do. It is a direct, uh, submissive admission of sin. What's actually taking, what's actually happening here is David is taking responsibility for his sin. When God confronted him, David took responsibility for his sin by, by not trying to talk his way out of it, by not trying to pontificate about it, by simply saying, you're right, it was wrong. I sinned. I have done what was wrong. It, it confesses that God is in charge, that he broke God's commandments, that what he did was wrong, that he, that he needs to behave in different ways. That simple statement contains a lot. And I think sometimes, I, I have a tendency to try and overtalk things, and I think sometimes those simple statements are the best. So how does God respond to this confession that David, this simple statement from David? Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now this will seem strange to us because it seems like God's punishing the innocent child instead of David. But this isn't a punishment so much as it is the unfortunate consequence of what David has done because in that culture, childbirth was a gift. A healthy child was a gift. And if you're king, a healthy son is especially a gift and it would show, it would be taken as a sign of God's blessing. It's kind of like victory in battle. And so if David's sin had resulted in a son, that would have sent the signal that it was a blessed union. And so unfortunately, because of, because of David's sin, it has to be made clear that God is not okay with this and God is, did not want David to do what he had done. But he has forgiven David. He's not going to kill him. And furthermore, later on it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Now that's an important statement. The Lord loved him. Why is that important? Because, you remember, that language was used in the covenant. This said that God was going to build David's house by giving him a son that, he w- that God would love. Right? So this is God signaling to David, this is the son I was talking about. Which is also signaling to David that the covenant is still in effect. So God forgave David and he honored the covenant. Now what we may struggle with here is the fact that it seems like David got away with it. These seem, it seems like um, David can get right back to his business and it doesn't cost him anything, um, which doesn't seem very just. But that's not actually the way the story goes. And from this point on, the life of David begins to fall apart. Because, remember those consequences that, that Nathan talked about, how the sword would never depart David's family? Yeah, the fact that David was forgiven did not remove any of those consequences. Because those were not extra punishments God was heaping on top of what David had done. Those were the natural outcomes of David's behavior. Because what ends up happening as you read through the rest of the story is that one of David's sons takes his sister the way David took Bathsheba. 
And then another, the, her, her full brother murders the first brother the way David murdered Uriah, a bit more directly, but it's the same principle. They're learning this behavior from their father. And then that son leads a civil war that, that drives David out of the capital and he goes on the run and has to go back hiding in caves again, just like when he was, uh, before he was king. And from this point in the story on, David is never really in control of events again. His world falls apart around him because of what he has done. Now, God is with him through this because David never loses control of the kingdom. He never loses his throne because God had promised that the throne would remain in David's family. But God does not remove the consequences of his sin. David still has to live through them. What God does is he sticks with David through those sins, but he doesn't, through those consequences, but he doesn't remove them. Because what David did was wrong, and it has those wrong consequences that have to be dealt with. So God forgave David and honored the covenant, but David still faced the consequences of his sin. And that is the life of the man after God's own heart. The man that God chose. See, when we talk about the man after God's own heart, we like to imagine that this is the guy who did everything right and that we can follow his example and everything will go great. But the truth is that even for David, uh, he did some pretty terrible things and he bore the consequences of it and there's a huge portion of his life that none of us would want to have to live through. But David also, he went through some of the lowest lows in the, king, in the monarchy, but he also achieved some of the highest heights. And so as we look at this story, we can learn a lot about what it means for us as people who have been entrusted to rule on God's behalf in whatever he's given us, what God is looking for from us. The first thing that we learn is that God can do great things through obedient people. That's the difference between David and Saul. David was obedient. Saul was taller, probably stronger, maybe a better warrior, I don't know. But those things are not what was important for David. What was important with David was that he was obedient to God. And God can do great things through people who are obedient. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily what we would think of as big things. Because God hasn't put us all in places to do big things. But wherever he's put you, whatever he's put in front of you, when you're obedient to God, he can do great things in, in your area, in your, what he's entrusted to you. Now, at the, same th- at the same time, we need to remember that even obedient people can still do terrible things. This is really important for us to remember because, unfortunately, we are just as prone to hero worship as any other people. And so we will see a person doing great things and we'll say, well, that person, they, you know, they must just be so close with God. I bet they do everything right. And we will we'll start to be tempted to worship the person, the church leader, the pastor, the, the musician, the, the evangelist, whoever. And then it turns out that they're not actually perfect. They're not actually Um, You know, they may do a terrible thing, and we tend to respond in two ways. One way that we respond is we say, well, they're doing so many good things that either they they couldn't have done that bad thing, or it's the good things outweigh the bad, and so it must be worth it. And so we cover up the bad things, right? We cover them up, we deny them, we ignore them. Usually that, doesn't work, that only works for so long because then those things come out. And when those things come out, the other way we react is it shatters our faith because the person that we put so much respect in turned out to be 
you know, to do terrible things, and it causes us to doubt the very effectiveness of the gospel. There's a lot of stories that there's probably names cropping up in your head that have happened like this. The most recent one that comes to mind for me is Ravi Zacharias, where we have a tremendous respect for a person who does you know, ministry and then find out bad things about them later that were covered up, and, and then it can cause us to, to lose, to struggle with our faith. But it's important for us to remember that, that sin is a part of the message of the gospel, the reality of sin. When we cover up sin, we're denying part of the gospel. When we pretend that we're perfect, when we create the illusion of perfection or the illusion that, we're not, that, we're, that we aren't uh, broken people being healed by God, we're actually denying part of the gospel. And so it's important for us not to, to cover these things up. Now, it doesn't mean that we go around broadcasting everybody's sins. I'm not saying that. But... We can't pretend that these things don't happen, right? And also, we need to remember when they do happen that that's partly confirming what, we're, what the gospel says about who people are and ultimately who we need. Now, the flip side of this to remember also is that if you're a person who's got sin in your past and you feel like, well, that means I can't be a person, I can't be used by God like he used David, that logic doesn't work either because if God didn't use broken people, he would have no one to use but Jesus, But it's really important for us. We have to stop, the church has to stop covering things up and pretending that these things don't happen and building people up into heroes that, that can't be sustained because of human brokenness. And the other thing that we need to do is we need to remember that when we fail, God wants us to take responsibility for our sins and face the consequences. Because another thing that we'll do, either through the, the covering up of sin or through the reconciliation process when it comes out is we will say, okay, the person's been forgiven, so now we all need to pretend that it didn't happen anymore. And just go back as if nothing ever happened. And we will often try to avoid facing the consequences of our sins. That might be the way, what we expect to happen when we repent. It's like, okay, no, I, I, I repented for that, so that's gone. God, God forgave me of that. It's been washed away, so there's no consequences anymore. But that's not how sin works. It still has consequences. And forgiveness doesn't mean that we don't still have to face up to what we've done and deal with the consequences of what we've done. So what God asks of us is that when we fail, we take responsibility. We confess. That's why we confess every week. We do the work of reconciliation. We do the work of repairing relationships. We do the work of of serving others to make up for the damage that's been done. We ask God to work through us to repair the damage that's been done. But we don't get to say, hey, I'm forgiven, so we can't talk about that anymore. Remember, it's wiped away. My record has been expunged. It never happened. It's not the message that we're called to. We're called to face our sin, to deal with the consequences. But we do all of this with hope. We do all of this with hope in, in a son of David. Because you see, about a thousand years after David, one of his descendants was born. And the angel said about him, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means he saves, God saves. 
And that's Jesus' name because God sent him to save us from the power of sin. Through Jesus, we can be saved from the power of sin and its consequences, whether that's your sin and the consequences or the consequences of other people's sin on you. There is hope for us for sin to be undone, for relationships to be repaired, for our world to be restored, for our families to be put back together, for our nations to be put back together. There is hope for more than just what we can accomplish by repenting and confessing and facing up to the consequences. That through the power of Jesus, this world can actually be changed. And we can be pulled out of these cycles of sin and consequence and generational things like what happened to David. And, and I mean, the consequences of that sin continue to reverberate. But through God, we have hope. Through Jesus, we have hope that we can be saved. And all that sin and destruction can be undone. So as we close, I'm going to ask you to consider what God may be calling you to take as your next step. If you're in a place where you need to give your life to Jesus to find that restoration, to find that transformation, to be saved from your sins, I encourage you to make that decision today. Today is the best day to do it. And you can come forward during our final song. If you're here or if you're online, you can talk to a Christian that you know and trust, or you can get in touch with the church, and we'd love to talk to you. If you want to get more connected with this congregation, you can sign up for a Connect class, and uh, th- we do those on Sunday afternoons. We schedule one when we, when we have people sign up, and we spend about an hour and a half talking about who this church is and what we do and how you can be a part of it. If you want to get more connected with what's happening at Turner Christian Church, then you can also sign up for a small group where you spend time with the same group uh, uh, on a weekly basis and, and help each other walk through this life and, and figure out what it means to follow God and to, and, to, um, and to just live life together. And if you want to find an opportunity to serve others, this church has opportunities to do that either in the congregation or out in the community. So we encourage you to sign up for one of those through your Connect card as well. So I ask you to consider what God's, what God's putting on your heart as we stand and sing our final song.